Okay, hello and welcome to another Shot Reverse Shot podcast, a podcast in which we attempt to talk about films within the confines of a particular theme that changes from episode to episode. Uh, I am Joe Gastineau and joining me once again, as always, is Ed Davis from Right Fine Blog. How are you doing, sir? I'm fine. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. It's a uh, reasonably warm day. It is. Um, by the time this goes out, it will be <laughs> uh, very cold. Of, dead of we should probably pre- like predict some kind of news stories from when this is actually going to air, because this is probably going to go out in September, October. Okay. So that Mars probe, oh man, I didn't see that coming. No. And they found that kind of three-headed squirrel <laughs> on Mars. Um, and, and then it killed it. It did, yeah. And um, Arnold Schwarzenegger was there and he'd lost his memory. Or his, should I say Colin Farrell? And his face was all stretched out. Yes, it was, yeah. Um, yeah, sorry, we don't know what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> we are going to refocus from talking about Mars. Um, because we have established on previous podcasts that nothing good happens Mars on Mars yeah. cinematically, um, and we are talking about adaptation uh, this week. Um, a hot potato of <laughs> cinematic discussion. Everyone's talking. About Everyone's it. talking about adaptation, um, and we're going to talk about the issues of adaptation. What are good adaptations and bad adaptations? Uh, what is uh, adaptable or unadaptable? Um, and yeah, at the end, uh, running through some dream adaptations that we'd love to see that we probably never will. Um, so, Ed, um, what are the biggest issues facing um, ad- film adaptations of sp- specifically books? Because a common complaint is, uh, it's not as good as the book. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, the the key question to kind of start from is uh, what, classifies as a good adaptation because i think there's two ways to look at it a good adaptation could be considered something that is really true to the book or the play or whatever or one that uses it as a jumping off point to explore something that uh is more cinematic and tries to get away from the confines of a book because they are essentially they are wildly different mediums they both have their own pros and cons you know you can do more psychological depth in a novel than you can in a film just by the sheer fact that you have the chance to say what the characters are thinking all the time Mm -hmm. which you can't really do in film and you Uh, can leap around in time and space much easier than you can on film because it's just bloody confusing isn't it on film yeah the uh, it's yeah it's uh, the sort of thing like the thing that always impressed me about um inception the christopher nolan film uh, that some people may have heard of mm. uh, is that whole the whole leaping between the different time levels of reality that happens towards the end, which uh, is probably the the best I've seen in a film of leaping between like different times so sort of nimbly in the way that you could imagine happening in a novel. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of the time, yeah, with uh, film, it can get a little bit uh, complicated, and also if you do have a complex novel that does all that sort of thing, you have the option to kind of like turn back a few pages and just so make sh- so you can make sure that you have digested all of the information. Whereas with a film, if you miss a sort of a key point, then uh, you're kind of lost really, aren't you? You can't just instantly go back. Yeah. Certainly not if you're watching it in a cinema. Yeah, it's just rude to ask the projectionist to wind it back so yeah. you can quite understand that bit. Um, I mean, it is a very, very common complaint um, that people enjoy the books more because they have imagined it themselves um, they haven't had uh, I mean a film adaptation is only one person's interpretation of a of a written story um, so something that, that kind of hinges quite a lot on 
imagining it, something like Lord of the Rings, where the things in the book don't exist and you have to uh, picture it yourself, um, is, um, you know, I, I'm surprised that the Lord of the Rings adaptations didn't upset more people who thought, mm. oh, I didn't think they'd look like that, or, you know. Or the, all the massive Tom Bombadil fans who were fuming that he was left out. Well, given the... You know, the third film is now That's, coming. Tom Bombadil could get his own. Uh, I'm I'm hoping they've gone for John Goodman. <laughs> John Goodman is Tom Bombadil, or a hologram of John Candy. Yeah, I've you know we're we're at that stage technologically now where we can have holograms. Yeah, because this will be going out in 2019. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, that's a very good example. Uh, uh, Lord of the Rings uh, is a book that, well, a series of books you may have heard of it um, that were deemed, you know ungainly and unadaptable to use a phrase that we'll come back to later um but what they did was they didn't really uh display that much fidelity to the source material but they very much captured the spirit of the book which is where an adaptation for me works the best is when you capture the spirit of the book um and you know the tone mm. um but you don't have to be slavishly um kind of faithful to to what happens and the, the machinations of the plot etc yeah, although sometimes it it does depend on the original book itself because if you're looking at sort of old sort of crime books, mm -hmm. uh, certainly sort of the stuff from the sort of 30s and 40s, like if you look at something like uh, Double Indemnity, the James M. Cain novel, or uh, The Postman Always Rings Twice, mm -hmm. those books are very sort of slim they're very quick reads they kind you can pretty much if you read it you can pretty much see the film adaptation in your head and then if you watch the film it's not that far away really because the the story is so lean that there's no real need to uh digress another good example is uh the novel of the graduate mm -hmm. by charles webb which is almost exactly the film that emerged on screen so i've almost uh scarily so really um but you know yeah it's something like something that's like a vast sci-fi or fantasy novel or perhaps a book that's a very thick sort of like psychologically dense work you're never going to be able to fit all of that into a single film mm -hmm. or several films so yeah the best thing is to try and put across something of what the book is about without having to think that you have to do every single event in the book which is where as much as I enjoy most of them, where a lot of the Harry Potter films kind of went wrong. Yeah, I was going to mention that because um, they are so uh, faithful to the source material. They shoot themselves in the foot and they, they, they come across as very episodic. Mm. Uh, I mean, I've only read books one to five or six, I think, and then I just kind of didn't bother. Um, um, but they are... They're very kind of uh, formulaic, aren't they? They mm. are uh, all Harry's having a bad time at home. He gets to go to school. What have you been up to over the summer? Oh, there's a plot. And then Dumbledore explains it all at the end, which is that. Cause, uh, and, and that's exactly what this, the film stick to until it gets to number three, where someone with a bit of imagination comes in. Yeah, um, you get some... What, the first two, certainly, because you've got someone like Christopher Columbus, who's at, at best functional as a filmmaker well, he was good at sailing navigating and discovering america oh yeah um but as a director just a workman like <laughs> very much so. um but uh yeah and it, i think that um it's interesting that the same writer ad adapts all seven eight uh yeah eight. eight um and he's a guy i hugely admire a guy called steve clovis who um adapted or he wrote and directed fabulous baker boys and he 
uh, wrote and directed a film called Flesh and Bone, which is a, a kind of undiscovered gem from the 90s, and I think he adapted Wonder Boys. Yeah, he, yeah, he did. Um, but then he found himself just doing the Harry Potter film for some reason, and I think that he was actually J.K. Rowling's choice, because she actually chose Terry Gilliam to direct, but he, yeah. the studio famously wouldn't let him. Um, and I wonder how different those films would have been with Terry Gilliam at the helm. I mean, they would have been a lot better, obviously. Mm. Um, but would they have been as faithful to the uh, material? Yeah, I think he perhaps would have been a bit more... Because he, he's obviously got... A, he's a great cinematic eye and a great cinematic storyteller. So I think that he probably would have did, done a similar thing to what Alfonso Cuarón did, which was to kind of hew everything down to the core of what the story's about mm-hmm. and be able to say well, the Quidditch isn't really 100% necessary to this particular story and maybe have uh, favoured atmosphere over sticking sort of fairly rigidly to all of the story beats, which is a lot of what happens in those first two. Um, I mean, the first one especially, and it really suffers Mm. pacing-wise because it's so rigid. It's probably why it works so well as like a Christmas film now when it gets put on broken up by adverts and Mm -hmm. stuff like that because you can kind of wander in and out and not really miss that much. But as a cinematic experience, it was very lumpy and uneven. Uh, And that's a problem that also afflicts the next few after The Prisoner of Azkaban because partly because you've got sort of Mike Newell who's less less talented a director than Alfonso Cuaron but also... um, uh, you've got the problem that that they were kind of in the middle of it and not really knowing how it was all going to end up. So they didn't know what was important and what to kind of drop because J.K. Rowling hadn't finished writing the book. So she didn't necessarily know what was important to drop, uh, which is the problem really when you're adapting a series that's being written as you're going along. Yeah. Um, can you think of any other um, notable adaptations, film adaptations of books where they've not necessarily stuck to the plot so much, they have captured the spirit of the of the book kind of perfectly and it doesn't really matter um, about the, uh, the particulars? Uh, I can think of one that, uh, ca- yeah, very much captures the, the, the tone, which is uh, Naked Lunch, right. the uh, William S. Burroughs... But Ed, that book's unadaptable. <laughs> so they say, but someone made a film of it. David Cronenberg managed to somehow turn it into a film. Another, uh, and that one, uh, I mean, to say, to talk about the events in Naked Lunch is kind of redundant, really, because it's not, it's, it's a book more about the, the language that's being used and the kind of crazy freewheeling assault on the senses. So when converting it to a sort of a narrative film, you you have to make concessions to the fact that you're not going to be able to get across that same sort of stream of consciousness feeling in a visual medium. But was was it really necessary for them to make a film of Naked Lunch? Because I remember when I, I read Naked Lunch, I was like, man, once I kind of got my head around what was happening in it, and, um, you know, it was pretty far out. Yeah. I didn't sit there thinking, do you know what, I really need to see this visualised. <laughs> um, do, do you think that um, some adaptations are unnecessary? I think it depends on the the source again because Naked Lunch, no one needed to see a film version of the book as it was written. Mm-hmm. But I think that people needed to see the version that David Cronenberg did because it was very much you can sit here the voices of both authors in that you can kind of you get the sort of the the tone that Burroughs was going for that kind of crazy junky feeling you know that. 
uh, and but you also get the visuals of Cronenberg, and Cronenberg also does an interesting thing where he weaves it in and, and really highlights the points of it that were kind of autobiographical or puts in bits of Burroughs' life. So he creates this weird uh, marriage of fact and very out there fiction, um, which makes for a very, very interesting and, and odd <laughs> film adaptation of a very difficult and odd book. Another book, speaking of Cronenberg, uh, uh, A History of Violence, mm-hmm. the uh, David Cronenberg film from 2005, he uh, made some very major changes to that from the comic that it's based on, by which I mean he basically completely removed the entire second half of the film, uh, of the story, because the second half of um, History of Violence, the comic... He becomes Batman. Yeah, more or less. Um, it is basically, you know, just going into him, uh, the Viggo Mortensen character, going back to his old life and, you know, fighting the crime, but in a really long and, and detailed way, whereas the, the film's just elegant and very sim- simplistic, but not in a kind of, in a in a dumbed-down sort of mm. way. It, it gets to the core of the story, which is about a man trying to forge a new life for himself and being unable to which is kind of belaboured in the comic another yeah an example I can think of where the tone is right we could probably go through these all day where the tone is right but it's not strictly speaking it's actually quite a faithful adaptation but they do miss bits out and it doesn't suffer is uh, To Kill a Mockingbird Hmm. which is a very very classy adaptation of a reasonably good book I'd say it's Uh, good yeah um, it's um, you know functional it does its job um, but I mean, they—that is—is is a film adaptation. It understands what it is from the off, and doesn't think about what it's casting off, and just yeah. kind of plows on regardless. Um, there are quite a few um, adaptations that we were talking about, uh, kind of off air, as it were, where the source material is just not really regarded in any way as, uh, I don't know gospel in mm. really not treated with much respect um there's a couple of examples that you mentioned from the kind of uh, new hollywood era uh more specifically jaws and the godfather where the source material is uh rather ropey kind of in terms of literature but elevated in film to something yeah. approaching high art yeah well that was the standard line for for many years is that it's very easy to make a great film out of a terrible book because again you don't feel so beholden to you don't have this kind of weight weighing down on you you know it's easier to make great the 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 thinking goes it's easier to make great film out of something like the godfather which is was was written and uh, uh mario puzo pretty much admitted this he wrote it because he was tired of being a starving artist and he was happy to write trash if it would get him some money mm-hmm. um and so he just wrote this sort of lurid really pulpy mob story uh it's easier to make a great film out of that and to see that the, the the kernels of of greatness in that than to try and make say a great film out of like Tolstoy or Mm -hmm. you know one of the great works of literature because there you've got the expectation and the hundreds of years of uh, people reading it and criticising it and uh, regarding it as this great work that if you fuck it up you're going to get hammered for it whereas if you fuck up The Godfather no one's you know people are going to be like well it's an air it's an airport thriller. Mm-hmm. It's like someone fucking up a John Grisham novel. You know, it's not going to be. Yeah, no one's going to lose any sleep. And I think you know, years later, he did. Uh, Coppola <laughs> did take on a. Uh, I've not seen the Rainmaker nor I read it. Uh, I don't think I have. I may have. I've now I've seen some Grisham films, but 
Um, I've seen the Pelicans briefs. Yeah. I mean, that's not very interesting. There was no. a bit in the 90s, it was kind of like a rash of, like literally a rash, like an irritating kind of <laughs> breakout of uh, John Grisham films. I mean, I have a very strict rule about books. If it's advertised in a train station, I don't read it. <laughs> and that's a very, very simple rule to go by. Otherwise, you know, you're going to be in the realms of kind of Swedish uh, thriller nonsense and <clears throat> you know, that kind of thing. Um, uh, what about, um, I mean, you talked about it um off air previously what about um one flew over the cuckoo's nest a, a very well regarded um i believe it was moderately successful um, during award season mm, yeah. um adaptation of a uh, was it a bestseller i'm not really sure uh, it's regarded as a modern classic it now. was i'm pretty sure it did it did fairly well i mean ken kesey was a fairly popular novelist you know for, of the of the beat generation or yep. the the just immediately post, post beats. beats um did we just invent a new genre there I think the we post might have. beats <laughs> cuz didn't he only write one novel um, I think so. And he, he wrote. I'm pretty sure he wrote uh, a bunch of non-fiction stuff. Right. Um, but I think that might be. Oh no, he also wrote uh, sometimes a great notion. Right. Which was turned into a film directed by Paul Newman. Oh, okay. Um, some years later. Uh, but yeah, no. Um, one for the cuckoo's nest. Uh, I'm I'm not a huge fan of the novel. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that it's a it's a very good book, but I didn't particularly enjoy it because it's all written from the perspective of Chief, the who is a somewhat minor character in the film, uh, and it's all about his. It, it's all from his perspective as someone who is mad. Mm-hmm. So he always talks about how uh, the machine, which is the you know the sort of metaphor for society represented by the hospital. Um, which is interesting, and of, and like it's a very interesting uh, insight into the cultural mindset at the time the book was being written, and what Ken Kesey kind of saw uh, the mental health institution, uh, uh, yeah, sort of like psychiatry and psychology as, which is as a form of repression against people who don't just don't fit into society. Mm-hmm. But like as as a book, I found it very laborious to read because you know I, I just couldn't get into the style. Whereas the film, you know, I think just makes all of those points again, but does it in such a sort of a wonderfully entertaining way. Um, yeah, I, and it, it's it's made its own mark, isn't it? It's a it's probably uh, one of those films that's all. It's a great film, but it's also a great book, and mm. you can kind of enjoy them independently. A couple of other in- examples I can think of, then that is something like to have and have not the uh, um, uh, Howard Hawks adaptation of the Ernest Hemingway book famously adapted by William Faulkner, so there's some serious pedigree yeah. on um, display there, but the film doesn't really bear much relation to the book. No. Um, and I think that shares quite a lot in common with um, The Big Sleep, which does is not that tightly tied to the book. I mean, the characters are, but I think it's around the time they were made. They're kind of... Are they postcode or postcode? Um, <laughs> are they post-haze code, I uh, should say? I think it's still in the, the throes of the So a lot, haze of, code. a lot of the kind of uh, saltier or kind of uh, downright darker elements have to be kind of excised. Yeah. Um, the famous bit in Big Sleep where they're talking about horses is yeah. quite a memorable bit when I think he's talking about sex. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure he is. Um, um, so yeah, th- those... Standalone is like really good films, but also good books as well. Yeah, the same is also true of a recent film, uh, There Will Be Blood, based mm. on the novel Oil. Or Oil! Because it's got an <laughs> uh, exclamation, exclamation mark. mark at the end. Oil! By, by, it makes uh, it sound like something a kind of Barrow Boy in the East End. <laughs> oil! Oil! oil. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Oil! By uh, Upton Sinclair. Yeah, we haven't seen a lot of those kind of reprints with 
Daniel Day Lewis's face on the front now a major motion picture, have we? There were there were there was quite a few of them after the film came out. Oh, I remember there? I remember trying to buy a copy of the book before uh, the film came out in order to read it, and I just couldn't find it anywhere. Um, and then like immediately afterwards, you know, I just like in like, Borders, uh, rest in peace, like my local Borders. Um, they just had like loads of them out there, but you know it, it was obviously quite a niche thing because they probably like... they probably thought there's going to be a massive rush on these, and they bought <laughs> loads and then went under. Yeah. So it's all well considering what the film There Will Be Blood's about. It's uh, <laughs> they thought they would have taken the moral lesson from, you know. Yeah, but the uh, the book is massively different to the. I mean, the only thing that really connects the two uh, is the character. There's a character in it called Daniel Plainview, mm-hmm. and that's more or less it. And he's an oil man. Right, uh, and that's more or less it. the uh, The novel is more about the sort of excesses of the oil industry, and like a lot of Upton Sinclair's things, like the, the the jungle, which is all about uh, factory workers and the way they're mistreated. It's all very agitprop sort of stuff, as opposed to sort of uh, there will be blood, which is about one man's descent into greed and madness as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but both of those work fantastically well as separate works of art, but uh, it's very hard to kind of like read the book and then watch the film and imagine that they're like the same thing other than the fact they have the same character. There are a couple of films that came out in the same year, I think, or maybe slightly after There Will Be Blood, which are adaptations, kind of curiously parallel. They're adaptations of children's works um, that have been had massive gaps filled in by two directors who kind of came out of the same uh, milieu, I guess. Um, and they are um, The Fantastic Mr. Fox by Wes Anderson and um, Where the Wild Things Are by Spike Jones. I mean, Where the Wild Things Are is famously uh, a kid's picture book, really, that's only got eight or ten pages, is it something like that? Uh, I think it's got something like 60 words. 60 words. It's got 60 words, and it's 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 maybe about the same amount in terms of pages. It's not very long. Yeah, it's, yeah so... Th- and, but the thing is, the film is... It's a very interesting film. Mm. It's not perfect. It has a lot of problems. Um, but as an adaptation, how where do you think that stands? I think, again, it's kind of it's similar to Naked Lunch. I'm not sure anyone's ever made that comparison. Um, <laughs> Definitely not a kid's film. Um, but a great kid's book. <laughs> one for bedtime. Um, there's a, They're both... Again, it's one where you can hear the voices of both... Uh, the original author, you know, Maurice Sendak's uh, world and his characters, but it's very clearly the work of uh, of a director who has a very distinct visual style. I mean, I think that uh, Where the Wild Things Are is a really quite uh, beautiful film, very autumnal, and it... Uh, but it quite melancholy. And it is very melancholy and full of anger and rage, and mm. you know, it's and dirtball fights and dirtball fights, which are amazing. Yeah, they are. Those those uh, suits are fantastically yeah. realised uh, creations as well, rather than doing full CGI. Um, and I think there it completely gets across what the uh, what the book is about, which is about the sort of the turbulence of, of childhood and uh, a, a young boy essentially creating a fantasy world in order to kind of work through his own uh, issues. But it does so in a way that is sort of visually very dynamic and and beautiful to watch. And uh, it feels like a film. It doesn't feel like an adaptation of a, you know, 60-word book. Mm -hmm. It it feels cinematic. And Fantastic Mr. Fox, I think that um, I'm... 
personally think that Wes Anderson, I've not seen Moonrise Kingdom. I'll, I'll put that caveat there now. Um, by the time this goes out, I might have done. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, I've not seen it. And at that point in his career, I felt like he had gone uh, rather stale. And I felt like his work was um, becoming a bit of a shtick. His style had kind of become predictable and, and laboured. And I think the, the Darjeeling Limited, uh, the, the film I think he made before Fantastic yes. Mr. Fox, had become, it felt very tired as a film. And I, I think someone said when the film was going to come out, Fantastic Mr. Fox, that is the film, um, when it was on his way out, saying that he, he kind of needed a break from himself and to adapt someone else's work. Yeah. And I think Fantastic Mr. Fox is, uh, it's fantastic. Um, and it's it does you know take huge liberties with a with a book quite um, ones, yeah and uh, but still retains you know is is a pretty cool kids film mm. um, and just a good film in general yeah it is it's a lot of fun and uh, it definitely it it feels undeniably like a Wes Anderson film it's probably the most Wes Anderson film mm -hmm. imaginable because <laughs> it takes his obsession with sort of minutia to the furthest possible extreme which mm -hmm. is when you essentially create your own world and uh do stop motion which is the uh absolute pinnacle for someone who's obsessed with tiny details yeah i think that might be why because i really i've seen Minrise kingdom and i love it it's but one of one of my favorite films of the year but it does feel uh as if fantastic mr fox was a kind of watershed moment because it allowed him to kind of really work through all of his ticks mm -hmm. and kind of express them in the in the fullest way possible, but in a way that was uh, really very fun uh, and you know and really enjoyable to watch. Um, can you think of any um, adaptations working in the sense that they are not fictional adaptations? Now I've got this one that springs to mind that there's the film adaptation of the um, Robert Evans book "Kid Stays in the Picture," where it's it's a film it's kind of hard to explain really it's him almost reading the york notes version of his own autobiography but mm. told through kind of like a photo montage have you seen the film in question yeah years ago yeah it's a kind of a very odd thing to see an adaptation of a book that's a documentary yeah i mean like there's uh, not much precedent for that is there yeah uh, the only one i can think of is touching the void oh which yeah. was a book before it became a film but uh that that goes even further in some ways because obviously you have the reenactments, mm -hmm. uh, which are staged very sort of uh, cinematically and to make it seem like a like a disaster, not like a survival, a sort of survivalist minimalist thriller about yeah. two men trapped on a mountain trying to survive. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, that's the only other one I can think of. Uh, they did they did do a film of um, Easy Riders Raging Bulls, didn't they? Which was yeah. rubbish because. I think the thing about the book is that there's so much, well, I say access to the key players of that movement. It's basically just gossip, isn't it, really? Largely. Largely gossip. Um, but but in, entertaining gossip. Yeah, very entertaining gossip. Um, but there's not really anyone who steps up to be interviewed um, for the documentary, apart from Dennis Hopper, who's very um, very open and mm. frank about his uh, experiences. Uh, well, in terms of the sort of the idea of uh, films being bad adaptations but good films, the other ones I kind of, that came to mind were um, the Thing from Another World, the 1950s uh, sci-fi movie based on the uh, Joseph W. Campbell short story "Who Goes There," mm -hmm. uh, which was later readapted as The Thing by mm -hmm. uh, John Carpenter, 
And uh, there it's very interesting because the John Carpenter one feels way more like an adaptation of the short story because it's more about the, the creeping paranoia of wondering if someone in your sort of party is an a communist. alien. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, or an alien, or yeah, or a homosexual. Yeah, I think that's an undertone that runs throughout the uh, the eighties remake. I did watch that the other day, and um, that film holds up so fucking fantastically. Well. It's so good. The effects are terrific as well. They've aged very well because they're not outdated. Yeah, the, it's the physical stuff. The stop motion bits a little bit, but yeah. then it just looks like stop motion, so you forgive it. So yeah, but the uh, the original. 1950s film is a really good 1950s science fiction film and it's got some some fantastic uh visuals particularly the really good one which is of the uh the uh characters kind of forming where the spaceship would be Mm -hmm. kind of like by where they space themselves out the body which is a nice bit of uh saving the budget by not actually having to do a um a uh, spaceship but also works because it's uh, visually quite a stark and creepy image mm-hmm. uh, but it's not massively similar to the short story whereas the, the thing actually does get the tone a lot better but that's a good example of one that's a great film but not necessarily that true to the tone of the of the original uh, and a really good example of this uh, Starship Troopers oh yes because I've uh, seen it uh, have you read the book uh, no the book is not funny Right. Okay. Uh, the book is very serious, kind of fascist mm-hmm. in its ideas. You know, a lot of the stuff in uh, Starship Troopers, the film that is being satirized, like yeah. the idea of uh, you should only be a citizen if you've been in the army, yeah. so you should only have the vote if you do that. And sort of the very militarized society is something that you get the feeling Robert Heinlein actually believed he wants that would be good as as a, a military man. So is it kind of mind camp with giant insects? Uh. No, it's not entirely fascist, but it's very not entirely fascist. Not entirely Ed Davis, fascist. stick it on the cover. But it is, it is, it does have these kind of creak sort of overtones that are a bit uh, uneasy. Read later, uh, is it the kind of book you read that when it says insects, it means Jews? <laughs> <laughs> because then, then we get into uncomfortable territory. I think maybe more communists, right? Than oh, Jews, communists, right? Okay. Uh, communists with their six eyes and pincers. Um, <laughs> So it's it's very interesting there because as an adaptation, you know, Starship Troopers, the Paul Verhoeven film, is uh, essentially satirising everything that its source material is about because the thing that its source material is about is stuff that the director has kind of railed against, you know, throughout his career, you know, when he started off making films in uh, in Holland. In, he's Dutch, isn't he? He is a Dutchman. Yeah, yeah in Holland when he uh, do things like uh, Soldier of Orange or... Uh, you know, even with RoboCop, which obviously uh, satirizes sort of consumerist culture, but also the kind of idea of corporations taking over society and forming their own sort of governments and police states. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're both they're both very good works. Like, even though I think there are there are elements of Starship Troopers, the book that I find very difficult to kind of take as anything other than a very uh, disturbing worldview. Mm-hmm. It is a very, very well-written and very entertaining piece of speculative sci-fi. You know, it's got a very sort of boy's own adventure sort of thing. Boy's own adventure? <laughs> yeah. What, Ronan Keating and those guys? Yeah. Wow. Uh, whereas the... So it, it works as the thing that it is, which is a sci-fi novel, mm-hmm. but the uh, the film version kind of throws all that out and then just, like, satirises the basic premise of its source material which, uh, you know, works really well. Um, 
sticking with sci-fi, there's uh, who do you think is a writer who's been served best, I think, by film adaptations? And the reason I say sticking with sci-fi is because uh, Philip K. Dick has got mm. um, uh, a lot of love from um, some pretty notable films uh, been made of his work. We've got uh, Blade Runner. Yeah. Um, Total Recall. Paycheck. Paycheck, starring um, Ben Affleck. Yep. And I, b- I believe that... Next, uh, starring Nicolas Cage. Uh, John Woo directed Paycheck, didn't he? did, he? yeah. Um, when they went to the thing which is uh, kind of common now where they put... They don't just put the certificate of the film. They say contains mild peril or yeah. whatever. Um, I remember Paycheck coming out and it said 12 and it said contains, uh, was it contains mild action? (laughs) And I was like, well, hang on. the problem. Yeah. I remember Bullet in the Head (laughs) and Hard Boiled where they would contain uh, quite bloody, grotesque, delirious action. Um, but no, contains mild action. Yeah, that's the, that was the point at which I think John Woo had to take a serious look at his career. Has he directed a film? Since? Uh, I don't know if he, I don't think he's directed an American film since because he made Red Cliff, you know, which was his big historical epic in China. Oh yeah, uh, which I didn't was, know that was him. Yeah, that was very well regarded, uh, two part epic, sort of Three Kingdoms era stuff, uh, and I think he's continued to make more stuff in China but I don't think any of it's been released over here yet right um, Minority Report's another another Dick novel mm-hmm. uh, what is it I mean are you familiar with the uh, the novels of Dick I'm familiar with um, the Blade Runner and with um, Scanner Darkly oh that's another great adaptation yeah yeah um, and uh, I think in a lot of cases there it's more the kind of what we were getting to before about getting across the tone or maybe the sort of taking a key idea from the source material and kind of running with it. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, Blade Runner, you know, takes the overall world of it, but the kind of themes that it explores aren't really explored in the novel all that much. Particularly the idea of what it is to be human is not a a big concern of of, uh, Philip K. Dick in that particular uh, novel. There is is a, a section of it in which uh, Deckard suspects that a fellow uh, Blade Runner is a uh, is a replicant, mm-hmm. and they have to do the test. You know, where they they uh, ask him questions, and um, and that's very much that kind of bled into the film because that character's not in the film, in, right? Uh, but they subsumed his story into the overall question of you know is Deckard a replicant or not. Mm-hmm. Um, which is another thing that's not in the book. There's no question of whether he is or not, which is one of the things that gets cited by people who don't think that Deckard is a replicant. You know, it's, he is. Yeah, it's the way well, they say that, well, he's not in the book, so he can't be in the film, but... Well, they're, they're, we're not asking you about the book, we're asking yeah. you about the film, dude. Exactly. Uh, and uh, similarly uh, with um, We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, which is the, the short story that... Uh, Total Recall is based on which is getting its uh, what is it the the remake is out this remake. week I think yeah this, or this week three or months next. ago <laughs> um, that one is there's no sort of um, question of whether or not uh, the Quaid I don't think he's called Quaid in the book but, um, uh, is uh, really who he thinks he is or not which is a key kind of point in the film of, of whether or not it's all happening in his mind or not mm-hmm. Uh, 
so I think he's very much he's been described as kind of like the science fiction writer, science fiction writer, which is that some some of his books are a little inelegantly written. I mean, my favorite of his is A Scanner Darkly because it's pretty much it's this sort of weird fusion of sci-fi conf, uh, concepts and uh, autobiography because it's all largely based on his experience as a massive drug addict in the sort of the sixties and seventies. And at the end of the film and at the end of the book, there's a uh, a postscript which says it's dedicated to, and it lists all these names, and they're all the people that he knew who had in some way uh, died or had their lives ruined by drugs and ended up being the inspiration for the characters in the book. Um, but the rest of them, it's kind of more a case of people see it and think, oh, well, that's a, that's a cool idea to build a film around. And sometimes you get great films out of it and sometimes you get next <laughs> yeah. yeah next kind of disappeared there was another film called knowing wasn't there with, with nicholas cage get those yeah. two confused um but yeah that's my own problem um <laughs> do you think that given the sprawl and the kind of scope of uh literature um and the possibilities of the written word television suits uh them as a as a, as a kind of a medium for adaptation better than film uh, it's certainly become that way in recent years. We've started to see more adaptations. Well, there's always been adaptations of books as sort of mini-series. Mm-hmm. Band um, of Brothers is a very good example. of a, That would no, never have worked as a film. No, it would, it would have, have been... been Saving Private Ryan, which was rubbish. <laughs> Do you like Saving Private Ryan? Uh, I haven't seen it in a while. I remember loving the opening and sort of being all right on the rest of it. I, I got a friend who took a girl on a date to see uh, Saving Private Ryan, and I asked him... I hadn't seen it at this point, and I was like, oh, is the opening Normandy Beach segment as kind of graphic and as shocking and as, as kind of, you know, punches, uh, that kind of devastating kind of hit, uh, as they say. And he said, I don't know, I was getting off with her in the back row. <laughs> and basically, he just got off with her through that bit and then watched the rest of the film. It's kind of the equivalent of Seinfeld uh, get, uh, getting off with a girl in, in uh, Chinder's List. list. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that episode. It's great. <laughs> um, but yeah, go on. Uh, but yeah, Band of Brothers is is a, is a good example. I mean, uh, that, that so takes many, its time, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, and so many Dickens adaptations have been done on on television, which yep. have tended to work a bit better than a lot of the film ones, with the exception of the David Lean versions of Great Expectations and Oliver Twist, which are both uh, really great films that work. Uh, great Expectations work surprisingly well because that's a very bulky and difficult mm-hmm. novel. Um, or Roots, the uh, classic. Uh, biopic of the hip-hop band mm-hmm. is it not <laughs> yeah is, it, is that it no um so i think that i it, really am undercutting every single serious <laughs> thing i'm trying to say today i'm very it, sorry it's all right mm. um keep it entertaining for the listeners. <laughs> uh but there's lots of scope in television which uh there isn't always in film unless you're going to make a an epic mm-hmm. whereas uh you can take something like you know, a good example of this is uh, the Mildred Pierce um, adaptations that we've had, with the two that we've had. There was the classic uh, 1940s noir. A none-too-shabby film. Not at all. And uh, the recent HBO miniseries starring Kate Winslet and directed by Todd Haynes, which is uh, very different in tone and style. It's more deliberately paced mm-hmm. uh, and more in keeping with the actual tone of the novel because the novel actually isn't that much of a noir at all there's not really a central mystery or anything um 
whereas the and in fact the the one of the characters dies in the film who doesn't die in the book or the miniseries mm-hmm. uh, so they kind of punch that one up to, to fit into what people kind of thought a james m came book was meant to be uh whereas the the tv series is more concerned with the sort of the psychological impact of this woman who's uh kind of fallen from a position in society because she finds out her husband's been cheating and so she decides that she's going to sort of remove herself from that situation and has to get like a real job and and winds up building a life for herself Mm -hmm. so it's more kind of uh sumptuous and more of a character study uh, which I think is something that you can do a lot more convincingly on television just because you can do it in four hour-long episodes or six or however many and kind of really explore the nuances of the character in a way that you might not in an hour and a half when you've kind of got to rattle through the plot. Well, that was um, kind of brings it round nicely to... Um, I don't want to mention this because I know it's a sore point with you, Ed, um, but Watchmen, yeah. the um, the quite marvelous uh, i'm gonna call it a comic i don't i dislike the words graphic novel um but yeah the comic by alan moore and dave gibbons um which uh kind of transcends the uh the genre it's a it's a truly brilliant piece of work um and it was adapted to a film a couple of years ago which wasn't quite Brilliant. No. By Zack Snyder, a um, director who we were always very kind to on this podcast. <laughs> um, but that was originally, uh, there was talk that Terry Gilliam um, was going to do it as a 12-part TV series because the uh, book, if you don't know it, is divided into 12 separate comics, which 12 is a thing that is quite important without wanting to give away what happened. Um, uh, kind of ticking clock, uh, literally ticking clock uh, throughout the comics. Um, and he decided, Terry Gilliam decided, a man who has tried and failed to adapt some very, or, or he's tried and succeeded to adapt some very difficult things. I mean, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is a very difficult book to adapt. Yeah. Um, and he gave it a damn good go. He said there's no way he could have done Watchmen in 12 parts on yeah. TV. So Zack Snyder, someone who, you know, has got a record almost as good as Terry Gilliam's in terms of quality, <laughs> decided to do it in two hours. Um, and what were the results like, Ed? Uh, a really quite terrible film. Hmm. Um, Did it go a bit slow, then fast again, and then slow again, <laughs> and then fast again? Yes, that was his main innovation, was uh, the uh, shifting in time. Before, he did loads of super slow motion in Watchmen. He did it slow, and then went really fast. Then really fast, then slow again. Yeah. Because, I mean, I'll, I'll, give, I'll play devil's advocate here. Okay. And the look of Watchmen, in terms of like the costumes and making... Uh, what could have been quite ridiculous, the kind of lycra uh, costumes and some of the more kind of comic booky elements, he kind of gets and it looks good. Mm. And then that's all I'm going to give him. Yeah, well, and the opening sequence where he does the uh, the history of that of a world in which superheroes are real set to the times they are changing mm-hmm. is uh, is really good. But it's kind of the only massively cinematic thing he does with the rest of the... Uh, with the rest of the film, the rest of it he just copies the look of the books. In in fairness, in a way that is impeccably realised mm-hmm. and very very close, but completely misses the sort of tone and meaning. Yeah. Uh, to the extent of the 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 one of the big things for me in that is in the comics the violence that the characters meet out is meant to be very realistic, 
and painful and kind of horrifying, and mm-hmm. certainly in the terms of what Rorschach does to people. Yeah. Uh, you wouldn't want him to dog sit, would you? No. And in the... Um, in the film, it's very stylized, mm-hmm. which defeats the point that Moore was trying. Moore and Gibbons were trying to make about sort of comic booky violence. The it's idea. got a hi- hyper stylized in a way to render any comment about the violence meaningless. Yeah, exactly. So he it, he tries to j- sort of zhuzh up the uh, the violence in a way. He, tr- that he tries to what? Sorry, zhuzh up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, to yeah, make it like really. There's something that the kids would like. That kids. That kids. The kids. Yeah. But completely destroys what the kind of meaning of a lot of that violence was in the book because the book was really, really violent. But it was making a comment about the fact that if superheroes did exist and were as violent as they are in comics, they would be terrifying figures. Like the, if if Batman was real he'd be you know a sociopath mm-hmm. in the way that rorschach is at least a sociopath uh, at the very least mm. um and uh yeah so the main problem there is it's so slavish to the look that it completely misses the feel and what the what the book's about and watchman is a very dense um oh, comic it, i mean for those who haven't read it it's you know your usual kind of panelled comic setup and then it will suddenly disappear into uh, 20 pages of someone's uh, biography mm. or um, a government report, a science report, or there's a comic within a comic where, you know, there's a kid who sits at a newsstand and he reads reads a a brilliant, quite brilliant um, pirate comic called Tales of the Black Freighter. Yes. Um, which I believe that Zack Snyder made as a, like, a mini film to tack on the side. I didn't see that. No, I didn't see that one. Um, but you know, yeah, that's great, Zach. But that is pointless in itself. It works in the context of the Watchmen comic. Yeah. But you know, don't, stick it in your film or don't. And that's the thing as well is that the comic is intended to be read as a comic. There's lots of it. It is very much designed as something that you're going to read in 12 separate issues. And one of the issues, kind of the best part, the part where Dr. Manhattan is on Mars, is mm-hmm. written in a way which is... Uh, I mean, just saying that, it's just so unwieldy cinematically, is... isn't it? That a character decides midway through the film and midway through the action when he's the only person who can save the world, that he's just going to go to Mars. And that's written in a symmetrical way where all the panels kind of mirror each other, which is something that doesn't work on screen because it's meant to, it's all to do with the way in which the the images unfold as you're turning the pages and what snyder did was he tried to copy the form instead of trying to make it sort of cinematic mm-hmm. which kind of loses what was special about the source in the first place yeah and everyone who read the comic said there's no way you can do this film um f- and make it like fundable um without changing the ending because mm. the ending spoiler alert for everybody um is is just a gigantic horrible terrorist attack in which millions is it millions do you reckon i'd say so it, it wipes out pretty much all of new york so that's yeah. millions um people die um and in the film they really bottle it and make it they kind of try and dr manhattan they make dr manhattan do it and they they just really they make it look it. at. They make it look as if Doctor Manhattan's done it. it. Oh, there's just a little bit on a clip where it says the energy signature was similar to what yeah, happens when yeah. Doctor Manhattan's around, and it was just such a bullshit way of doing it. Because I remember reading. I mean, the Watchmen 
film was in development for an awful long time, and there was a, you know there still is scripts knocking around the internet of the you know of the older adaptations, and some of them just had um, the the Watchmen fighting terrorists and stuff, and had nothing to do with the original comic. But one had a really great idea that it opened with with the comedian falling to his death, but started as if he was flying through the air like a like an actual superhero yeah and then all of a sudden changed the direction of the camera as he plummeted <laughs> to earth and died um That's and it's cool. ideas like that work but as a whole you got to say that is watchman question un- unadaptable i think it's it's unadaptable in the sense that you can't do a straight a straight adaptation of it or try to just mimic the look and and hope that that'll be enough you have to kind of bring a different sensibility to it mm-hmm. like i know that um uh paul greengrass was attached to direct it for quite a long time uh, after was, yeah. after terry gilliam and his one was going to make it sort of modern day and it was going to be the it was go- it was going to be in his sort of style mm-hmm. rather than in the style of the comics and i think that would have that that could have been truer to the tone of the uh of the comics whilst abandoning everything about it and i think that's the key really is something's only i don't think that there is really anything that's unadaptable but it's just a question of whether or not someone can find something in a source that then can be shifted across you is if the question is uh can you sort of port everything from one thing to another then you can't because you can't fit everything that's in a novel into a film and make it sort of easy to watch uh or even you know every sort of thing in a play because you know most plays would be a bit too long to make into a film and Mm -hmm. obviously rely on uh different different ideas to a film but uh you can take the essence of those things and make them into films if you've got someone who's a clever enough writer or a clever enough director to make the necessary changes to fit it into the new medium and that person isn't Zack Snyder I'd say not no okay um well you know we've kind of covered quite a lot of adaptations now so um I think it's time to delve into our regular feature our top 10 <laughs> Top 10. So, Ed, what are we doing? Uh, we were going to talk about, because we've spent this whole time talking about adaptations and uh, adaptations that we perhaps have and haven't liked and what works and what doesn't work, uh, we're going to run through a list of our top 10 adaptations we would like to see, so a wish list of things that we think would work as films or TV series or, or whatever. Okay, and what have you got to start us off? Okay, my first one is the uh, Shannara series by Terry Brooks, which are a series of uh, science uh, of, of fantasy novels set in a post-apocalyptic Earth. He started writing them in the late seventies, and uh, I think is still writing them now. Uh, How many are there? Uh, there were four in his kind of original series, uh, and they were followed up by an additional. No, sorry, there were three in his original series, followed up by four and then another four, mm-hmm. which were written in different decades. And they all chart the different adventures of this uh, family called the the Omsfords, who are sort of descendants of great kings and and uh, magic users who have kind of kind of faded from history. And Not the way you say magic users, like heroin users. <laughs> Magician, you know, great magical uh, entities. Right. And... Uh, they kind of fade away from history and then 
at various points in the history of this world are, are called upon in some way to uh, act as either leaders or to undertake quests. And, you know, it's, it's a typical fantasy thing, but it's very inventive and really propulsively written. They are, you know, hugely exciting uh, works of fantasy fiction. And I think that they would now, you know, technology has more or less caught up to the level where you could realise those sort of stories uh, convincingly. And, you know, there's lots of massive battle sequences or more often not very small scale and tense battle sequences. The characters in them are always very uh, uh, interesting and sort of very easy to sympathise with. So when... And he has a very... Uh, he's very willing to just kill characters off at right. will, which... Uh, you know, I could see working very well in the film because you could, you know, care about these characters who you go on a journey with and then suddenly just end them. And in a sort of post Lord of the Rings, post Game of Thrones world, I could see them working very well as films. Maybe less so as television, because even though they are, they kind of tell stories, each one's fairly, fairly linear. So I don't think you'd get a huge amount from trying to spread them out over like 13 episodes a book or 10 episodes a book as, as happens with Game of Thrones. Uh, have any attempts been made to adapt this property already? Yeah, there's the uh, the first book, The Sword of Shannara, which was written in sort of 1978 or published in 1978, was optioned and rumoured to be in development uh, about three or four years ago. So it's kind of, it's one of those things where it's an ongoing concern, but they don't they don't seem to have kind of got all the pieces together yet. Right. Uh, so it's one of those things that I always keep my eye on because I think with the right people. It could be really fun and a really good film, but with the wrong people, it would just be horrible to see. <laughs> <it. laughs> um, so I'd be quite nervous, but hopeful. Right. Um, I'm going to pick uh, for my first one uh, the corrections, which is a Jonathan Franzen novel. Have you read it, sir? I haven't. No, it's been on my shelf for years. It's a uh, brilliant modern classic uh, tale of a tim- simple tale of a family, um, kind of uh, separated. Um, by many things uh, about disconnecting from your mum and dad and you know kind of just follows each members of, of this this kind of incredibly fucked up family and kind of brings it all back to moments in their past and it's such a rich uh look at uh dysfunction um without it being kind of cartoonish um i mean it would be a very difficult book mm. to realize as a film uh but someone like alexander payne would do a a wonderful job. I think that he'd. I don't. I don't really like the Descendants that much, and mm. I think that he would. Um, uh, well, if they gave him Jim Rash to work with, yeah, um, then he would uh, probably turn in a good job. It's a very caustic book, right? Um, so in keeping with Payne's kind of sensibility, yeah, definitely. And I think that it's something that uh, I think a lot of people have wanted to see. This this one has been in development a long time. I mean, some of the the casting choices are just so obvious when you what like, there's a sister who kind of runs a restaurant it's but it's written kind of pretty much as julianne moore um <laughs> and just she's absolutely perfect for it um but I, I, i'm not sure whether that's ever going to be doable they did a pilot for it for hbo this year they right. were going to do an adaptation and uh if you'll just bear with me a moment i'll look at the details of it uh, i know ewan mcgregor was going to be the star and wow! They, they lined up a really big cast, and they actually did make the pilot. But HBO opted not to pick it up. It's one of their. They made the pilot with Ewan McGregor in, or yeah, uh, the corrections. Yes, uh, it was with uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal right. and Ewan McGregor, 
uh, Risa fans. Uh, it was adapted, and the pilot was shot by Noah Baumbach. Wow. Um, who else was in it? Greta Gerwig, Chris Cooper, Diane Weist. This is the best thing I've ever heard of. Where, where can I get such a thing? I don't know if it's ever been released or if it will ever show up. Because uh, it was, as I say, they, they filmed the pilot, and then HBO opted not to pick it up for whatever reason. Uh, it was one of their more ho- high-profile uh, rejections in wow. recent years. Because they, they have often kind of like done that where they've optioned something fairly high profile and and decided not to go with it but that one was all of like yeah that cast you know was everyone was really kind of thinking this is going to go ahead and then it just never happened but wow i wonder if that's like available online or something or whether that's i think the best great lost thing the best chance of it ever kind of appearing is if uh, noah Baumbach plays it at a festival somewhere because i know that with because there was a also there's a comic series by Joe Hill uh, Stephen King's son mm-hmm. called Lock and Key which was uh, adapted and the pilot was shot for it uh, for I think NBC or, or one of the major networks which wasn't picked up but he has whenever he's gone to like Comic Con and things like that they've screened the pilot for people to see as like a treat wow so I think the best chance of it ever cropping up anywhere is if uh, Noah Baumbach presents it at a festival somewhere and people uh, kind of release it or if someone at HBO decides to covertly leak it but uh, I'm not sure I, I don't think it has made its way into the world yet well that's so it has been adapted but just not released yeah adapted the first maybe couple of chapters have been adapted wow unbelievable uh, you think if they were going to do it as a miniseries uh, rather than an ongoing series that you know they wouldn't do a pilot they'd just do three and out yeah, I think they were looking to do it as a series. So I don't know if... I think they may have consulted with Franzen about, you know, going beyond the novel or maybe breaking the novel down over several seasons. Right, wow. Wow. How would you feel about that, it being rather than just a miniseries, but... I don't well, it wouldn't make sense because at the end they destroy the One Ring. <laughs> <laughs> In a volcano. Um, no, I, I, I... Yeah, I can't really see... Yeah, I can't really see it beyond a mi- being beyond a miniseries. Because that's what they're talking about doing with American Gods, the Neil Gaiman adaptation, right. uh, which is in the works, <laughs> may may happen. They've essentially said that the they do it as a ongoing series, and the first season would be the book, and then beyond then, you know, Neil Gaiman would help them to kind of move it forward as its own sort of entity once they get beyond that. Hmm. So it's and you, it, you know it's kind of a pulpier example, but that's essentially what's been happening with Dexter, right? Uh, the serial killer uh, series where they've more or less abandoned the books after the end of the first season, and then have kind of gone their own way with it. I didn't know it was based on a popular series of books. Yeah, it's uh, three or four series by oh, uh, three or four, three or four books by a guy called uh, Jeff Lindsay. Ah. Uh, Pretty much, it's the the first season is pretty much the first book up until the very last scene of the first episode, in which ca- where they just completely cut loose. They yeah, they completely cut loose and to go in the exact opposite way of how the book goes, so that they uh, were then sort of free to explore whatever they wanted. Yeah. Um, what else have you got next? Uh, speaking of Neil Gaiman, uh, oh, I've got uh, Good Omens by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. A uh, fantastic comic novel uh sort of a spin on on the omen in which a uh 
a uh, the Antichrist is born into the world, but winds up instead of being because uh, the sort of satanic nurse at the hospital messes up the uh, the Antichrist ends up being raised by uh, a normal family in Cornwall uh, right. rather than by the American ambassador, which is who he's meant to be. And it's a really funny uh, book. Um, you know, it's got sort of things about uh, the fight between good and evil and nature and nurture in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just these this kind of like delightfully silly, but uh, in the way of uh, a lot of Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman's work, there's kind of sort of a deep emotional resonance beneath all of the gags. And the gags are very funny, mm-hmm. uh, which I think would work very well as a film. Uh, but it just... And I know Terry Gilliam has basically had it as one of his dream projects for years and years and years. Wow. Um, and I think... It's one of those ones that, you know, as soon as I read the book, I thought, man, I'd really, really like to see a really cool film version of this. And uh, it's one of those ones that kind of keeps receding further and further away as uh, Gilliam fails to make more films. Yeah. Which is kind of a problem. And he's the only person whose sensibility I could see really working with it. You said that um, it's on his dream list of projects. Yeah. That's probably quite a long list. And he's probably going to make one film and then die. Yeah, he's getting on a bit, isn't it? It's he a is, shame, yeah. really. Um, I've got. Uh, I'm going to pick a comic. Uh, comics are very difficult because I think that they uh, sometimes uh, can be too slavishly done. Mm. Like Watchmen, we talked about, but then something like Sin City, which is essentially just filming the panels of the of the comic, doesn't really bring it to life in the way that you kind of want it to. No. Um, but there's a comic. Um, called 100 Bullets. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Uh, I've heard of it. I've not read it. Uh, it would make a great series. Uh, I'm not sure about film, but the the central conceit behind 100 Bullets is that um, it follows just various kind of sad sacks and people in their lives. Um, and uh, an, an agent called Agent Graves just turns up and gives them a briefcase. And the briefcase is a gun and 100 rounds of untraceable ammunition and irrefutable proof that a person has wronged you um and you're told that um if you use the gun you can kill that person and um no charges will ever be brought it's an untraceable murder so each episode of the each edition of the uh of the comic um basically just asks the question given the given the choice uh and the opportunity would you take that revenge um and whilst it's not a weighty kind of moral um tale um, it's quite cool um, to see it, and uh, as the series unfolds, you uh, try and find out a bit more about who this Agent Graves is and the opportunities that where he's coming from, and then it kind of spreads out into, into a kind of like government conspiracy type thing, and it's kind of quite cool. Hmm. Um, it would you, you can't do it too realistically though, because it is quite ridiculous. Yeah, um, and it's something that would make um, not only an excellent TV series, but also quite a good video game, I think. Yeah. Although, you know, obviously you would always try and kill that person. Um, but, um, yeah, I think that's what like that's the comic that I'm most keen about seeing. I'm not sure if they're ever going to do it, though. I know it's one that's been, again, it's one that's been sort of circled by uh, studios. I think, I'm pretty sure it was in development as a TV series fairly recently. Uh, was you and McGregor in it? No. No, that's a shame. He's the kiss of death for telly these days. I know, yeah. Um, based on the one project he was involved with, which didn't yeah. go forward. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, like from from that basic setup, it does sound like it'd be work really well as a sort of procedural series with mm-hmm. the only linking thing being, or, you know, an, an anthology really. I guess it would be if it's different characters except yeah. for Asian Graves. Yeah, there's there's a few recurring characters, right. but everyone else is is the people who are being given the the suit the suitcase the briefcase I should say um, are different every time. Mm. So yeah, I think that could it could be a really fun show to watch, especially if you've got the sort of overarching thing of, yo, who is Agent Graves? Why is he doing this? Which you would kind of hook people to keep watching other than the sort of weekly murder. <laughs> mm. And it's very brutal as a comic. Right. It's uh, a bit in a very kind of stylized way, so it'd be quite a nifty show to adapt, I think. Right. Maybe Zack Snyder could do it. <laughs> um, what have you got? Uh, next up, I've got uh, a comic. We'll go uh, for that, which is uh, Preacher. Oh. by uh, Garth Ennis. Another one that's been hanging Muted. around for a long time. Yes, uh, a series from started in the, the 90s all about a uh, a preacher named Jesse Custer who is uh, sort of on his last legs, uh, kind of has given up in his belief in God when he is given irrefutable proof of the existence of God when he is given the power of God, uh, which allows him to essentially destroy everything around him just with the power of his voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he ends up teaming up with a sort his ex-girlfriend and a uh, sardonic uh, Irish vampire mm-hmm. in their quest to find God and hold him account for uh, to account for the uh, way in which he has abandoned his creation. So it's the sort of thing that you could see people having issues with trying to adapt yeah because uh, it's a series in which god is essentially the villain yeah uh, and every time he shows up he's treated that way he's not a nice person is god mm-hmm. um but it's a it's a hugely enjoyable very pulpy uh series uh goes through a lot of the uh stereotypes of the american south because it starts off in texas and ends up going through like louisiana and lots of back backward places like that and it's got these wonderful characters, those central three would, would just be great fun to watch interact with each other. But you also have the Saint of Killers, yep. who is a... I've read that thing. I read one episode of Preacher and it was the Saint of Killers, one where he, he goes to hell mm. and tries to fight the devil. Yeah. Yeah, the Saint of Killers is a wonderful Clint Eastwoody gunslinger character who's always after Jesse. And there's also a cabal of uh, of this sort of secretive catholic or or, or re- religious i'm pretty sure they're catholic because they're related to the pope in some way right uh sect who are also out to get him because uh it's irrefutable proof that there uh is a god and that he's uh perhaps not who they've presented him out to be uh and it's got as it's not i don't think it's as, as kind of deep and amazing as some people say it is but it is a really fun comic book that would make for a terrific TV series. Again, I know there was like there was like talk of turning it into a movie. I believe Sam Mendes was due to turn it into a TV series, which didn't happen. Uh, and then, well, that's an odd choice, isn't it, Sam Mendes? <laughs> I know he was. Well, wasn't Kevin Smith attached to it as well? I think so. I know uh, that the last serious attempt to get it going was as a film by the guy who did Daredevil. So perhaps uh, good, oof. perhaps very good. That one didn't go ahead. Yeah. Um, but I, I just don't see how it would work as a film, even if you made it a trilogy or whatever. There's just like such it's such a sprawling story mm. that it would just it would just suit television, and also the nature of it with these kind of fun characters kind of exchanging uh, funny, witty dialogue with each other 
would just suit the more laid back way in which television works. Mm. Yeah. And with the yeah, I mean, it'd be very difficult to spend that amount of money on a film that would be R-rated and and would not get past the censors. But mm. on HBO, when you've got a bit more, a bit more freedom. freedom, you can probably explore that. Um, I'm going to pick something, and I think it would be a brilliant film, uh, but also it'd be a very good three-part miniseries. I think um, it's the novel, uh, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, by Michael Chabon, uh, who has had his work adapted. In the shape of Wonder Boys, that was adapted, wasn't it? Was there anything else he's done? Uh, I think there have been a few short stories made into films, but Wonder Boys is the only like major one. But the Coens were circling around one of his, weren't they, for yeah, a long time? they were circling around the uh, Yiddish Policeman's Union. Ah, right, okay. Which is a speculative fiction sort of sci-fi thing set in an alternate universe in which uh, Israel was destroyed in the immediately after it was created... Right, uh, and the Jewish people have been given a homeland in Alaska, oh, okay. and it's all set against the sort of the art, the sort of tundra, and against this backdrop of uh, knowing that the sort of lease on that land uh, is coming up, so they're going to no longer have a homeland sort oh, of right. fairly soon. It's a very, it's a very interesting book about sort of Jewish identity and the different sort of kinds of Jewishness in a way. You know, like the idea of uh, sort of the really hardcore. Uh, uh, Jewish sects who don't really talk to their own, so there's kind of a Chinatown sort of thing going on there because it is a it is a detective uh, story, mm-hmm. so it's sort of a noir but set in this kind of weird and uh, insular community. It's the sort of thing that the Coens would have done really well. I'm not sure if they're still circling it or not. Mm, I'm not sure, but the Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, uh, the amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, um, is. Um, a kind of multifaceted story, really, about two uh, brothers. I don't know. Are they not brothers, are they? They're cousins. They're cousins, uh, one of which is American, the other one of which is uh, Eastern uh, European. I think he's Polish. Polish, who is uh, shipped over to avoid the kind of horrors of the Holocaust and um, strikes up this kind of relationship with his cousin, and they uh, grow up together, and um, their kind of mutual fascination with magic... Um, and also against the backdrop of what's happening in Eastern Europe during the war, they write a comic strip called The Escapist, or The Escapist. Mm. I'm not really sure how you say that. I think it's Escapist. Yeah, The Escapist. And um, The Escapist is a kind of like superhero who fights Nazis, and it's their way of dealing with what's happening to their family overseas. Their sense of powerlessness. Yes, yeah, the sense of kind of like uh, being completely... Um, cut loose from what's happening and not knowing a lot of the time is not knowing um what they're doing over there um and it's just a really brilliant book um which has got an awful lot of excitement in it but it's all kind of contained within their own imaginations and it's also really uh cool as a exploration of the creation of the modern superhero comics because the escapist is uh, very much analogous for Superman, also a American hero created in the 1930s by a couple of Jewish uh, emigrants mm-hmm. uh, or, or sort of uh, Jewish uh, young Jewish men, and uh, it's uh, as with the Yiddish Policeman's Union, it's also got things about sort of Jewish identity, but there's also stuff about uh, sort of homosexuality is a very strong part of it. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, it's it's got there are loads of layers. It's one of my favourite books as well. And you, you just kind of think there's so much scope for this kind of 
multifaceted and uh, hugely enjoyable story. And it was being uh, Stephen Doldry was attached for a long time. Glad he didn't uh, yeah. go there. I don't. I don't really know who would be perfect for that. I mean, the Coen Brothers would do a great job, but it's just whether it suits their kind of mildly eccentric worldview. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's it's a tough one really because it's such a vast and sort of distinct work. And the journey that each of those characters go through is quite preposterous <laughs> if you think about particularly the journey of one of them off the top of the Empire State Building. I'm mm. not giving a spoiler there. but no, it's um, on the front cover. Yeah, it's on the front cover. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's it's something that um, if someone did it, they'd have to do a good job. And if they did a good job, it'd be a great film. Mm. Uh, what have you got next? Uh, next, I have uh, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. That's a, uh, a modern classic. It is very much. Um a story of a, a young man, a uh, young black man moving to Harlem in the sort of 1920s, 1930s, one of the more uh, radical times uh, in sort of black history when you've got all these different um, ideological forces trying to trying to determine how the sort of the uh, how black people should uh, move forward, you know, in in their pursuit of equality. You know, you've got the and he's torn between between the kind of more militant. Uh, wing and the sort of the more kind of uh, pacifist kind of thing, and it's so he's torn between Magneto and Professor X. Is that <laughs> yes, what you're saying? <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Uh, but it's a it's a wonderfully evocative book. It's it's clearly very influenced by the jazz age and the way it's written. It's all very uh, lyrical, and it's the sort of thing where I could imagine it would be amazing if someone did like an animated film of it using sort of a very sort of expressionistic kind of style mm -hmm. uh which really kind of captured the feel because i think if you were to do it with just live action actors it could seem a bit sort of staid and stodgy but if you've got something that allows for sort of flights of fancy or for like uh, to try and because there's a lot of uh sort of paintings from that era were very sort of uh, expressionistic and, and not very sort of clearly delineated figures but you got the sort of sense of of what was happening and i think that that sort of style would amazingly suit uh, an adaptation of Invisible Man if anyone ever actually tried to make it. And it is an important sort of snapshot of a particular era in American history. Mm. And no one's been circling that? or Not as far as I'm aware. I don't know. Uh, it's kind of a... Yeah, it's a modern classic, but it's the sort of one... I think it's got an air around it that if you were to mess it up, it would be, you know the last thing you'd do in Hollywood, really. Career suicide. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I'm going to pick a, a video game, Ed. Um, a very poorly represented uh, group. There's been no video game adaptations that have been good. Mm. Um, I think that um, it's weird that as video games become more cinematic, the cinematic attempts at recreating them have got worse. Yeah. Um, and um, But there's a film, a video game that I'd love to see adapted, um, it would only work as an animation um, because it is a purely fantastical uh, uh, game, but it's the game Psychonauts, um, designed by Tim Schafer, um, who did uh, things like Grim Pandango and uh, what's the other one? Monkey De Island? Uh, Day of the Tentacle. Oh, Day of the Tentacle. Um, stuff like that. Um, and yeah, a very kind of uh, eccentric platformer. The game isn't that revelatory in terms of, um, you know, uh, gameplay wise very simplistic but the games take place at a uh, summer camp for psychics 
and each level takes place inside someone's own subconscious so every single level is completely different a kind of completely um uh kind of uh uniquely realized world you go into the mind of a kind of uh grizzled war veteran and you go into the mind of a, a mental patient who thinks he's napoleon and uh, a kind of uh a deluded another mental patient who who kind of sees himself as a matador in spain and it's just each level is completely crackers and um yeah the, the matador level and the, and the level when you go back into a kind of 50s uh paranoia world where everything is kind of folded in on itself and it's bizarre um it's yeah the whole thing is great but it would make an awesome cartoon yeah. a really really cool cartoon because the story itself uh it, I'll, I'll give a spoiler at the end at the end you this is not how the game finishes, but a series of events contrive that you're taking on the the worst opponent that you've ever faced, but you're just a brain in a jar that's got no body. Oh, and you've yeah. just all you could use is your psychic powers to negotiate the the toughest challenge. It's it's a really brilliant game. It's kind of got a very wry sense of humour. It's very mm. funny. Uh, and I think that would make a cracking uh uh, uh cartoon series. Um but I mean as as a whole video game rep- uh, adaptation is very very poor yeah i think the, the only one that springs to mind is sort of like a particularly as a film that kind of works in its own right is the first of the resident evil series of films mm-hmm. which is a perfectly fine sort of zombie romp really uh it's not necessarily a good representation of the, the thrill of playing the resident evil games mm-hmm. which are uh, it must have better dialogue though than the dialogue in the Resident Evil games. Yes, there's no one going. Wait, don't open that door <laughs> uh, or anything of those like. You are the master of unlocking. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's the only one I can think of uh, in terms of uh, as a slight tangent uh, sort of adaptation. I don't want to see that people have been talking about is uh, Bioshock. People mm-hmm. have been talking about adapting the video game Bioshock for a film which is the sort of thing that I am totally against because uh, for a similar reason to why I don't like Watchmen, which is that Bioshock is on one level a game about the mechanics of playing games. Mm-hmm. Because, and then this is a bit of a spoiler. You go through the game and you believe that you're helping a character who's part of a resistance against this maniacal person who's created this uh, underwater city, this Ayn Randian uh utopia in which the free market runs free and then has just completely sort of devoured itself by the time that you arrive in the game and then you discover part way through that the person who you believe has been your ally is actually manipulating you and that you your character has uh, embedded in his in his mind this sort of uh, hypnotic response so if you hear the phrase would you kindly you have to do the thing. So, like, for example, the, when you discover this is when you are beating someone to death because this person says, would you kindly kill him? Um, but the thing that's really clever is up until that point, you don't realise you're being manipulated because you're so used to playing games where someone says, please do this task, mm-hmm. that you don't realise that this person is using this actually quite strange phrase, you know, would you kindly? So it's about the way in which people are kind of... that You play games by being sort of directed through very narrow sort of hoops and it's the sort of thing that wouldn't work in a film yeah once it, you remove a, that element from yeah, it yeah uh, once it comes out as a and also as a twist you know it's less revelatory really mm-hmm. um so uh i'm gonna do my final one now okay uh, after that tangent uh 
is book. It's a book, uh, The Strain by Guillermo del Toro and Chuck Hogan, mm-hmm. uh, which actually started out as a uh, TV series or an idea for a TV series that Guillermo del Toro had um, after chain watching The Wire. Right. He wanted to create a horror series about vampires, which had the same rigor as The Wire. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one was interested, even though I think that sounds like a great idea for a TV series. Yep. Um, and so he and uh, Chuck Hogan, uh, who is a, a crime novelist, uh, developed this trilogy of books called The Strain Trilogy. Um, they start off with a vampire arriving in sort of New York... Uh, on a plane. A vampire in Brooklyn, you say? He <laughs> um, may at some point end up in Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. um, and it's very, the opening uh, sort of scene of the book is uh, a deliberate homage to uh, Dracula mm-hmm. instead of a boat, wa- uh, an empty ship kind of like landing on the shore. It's a plane full of dead people. Uh, and then over the sort of next couple of days, these dead people get up and start wreaking havoc throughout. New York, and the story is told from the perspective of uh, the sort of CDC uh, people who are trying to investigate and figure out what's going on. But there's loads of little... The way in which the first novel particularly unfolds is it follows what happens to each of the people on the plane that survived, who get sent home because it doesn't seem like anything's wrong with them until a couple of days later when they start like opening people's throats. Yeah. And... Uh, the stories are really interesting because they they veer in tone between outright horror and some that are kind of like incredibly bittersweet in the way that sort of uh, Guillermo del Toro's films often are. The one that really sticks out in my mind is uh, a, a woman whose husband comes back from the pla- from being on this plane, and then she notices that he's acting strange and you know that he's getting violent, so she winds up uh, locking him in like the garden shed, and. Uh, she sees what he's turning into but because she still loves him she like brings animals to feed him and eventually people and it's this really sort of heartbreaking and tragic and horrifying little vignette Mm -hmm. which seems like it would make for a great sort of standalone episode or subplot of this broader series if it wound up being a a tv show uh and i think that it's uh the the way in which those books are structured is like they're they're written in a slightly workmanlike way they're they're quite functional Mm -hmm. just but the ideas behind them, you know, you think if you were, if they were realised visually as a film trilogy or as a TV series, it would be something quite special. Yeah. Is there any word on if that's ever going to uh, happen? Pe- I think people have raised the point with Guillermo del Toro as saying, like, are you putting these out now so that you can adapt them in the future? And he's been very cagey on it. I mm. imagine if it was to happen, he would probably be the one to do it. Right, or start it and Peter Jackson can finish it. Yeah. And stretch it to nine <laughs> nine films. Yeah. Um, I'm going to pick my last one to wrap this up, and um, I'm quite excited to talk about this because um, it's something that me and you have spoken about before. It's a bit of a cheat, really, um, because I would like to see an adaptation of Hamlet, but I hear you say Hamlet has been adapted many times before, and you're right, it has been adapted many times before, um, but I would like to see an adaptation of Hamlet performed by the cast of AMC's Breaking Bad. <laughs> now, this came about when I was watching uh, said AMC's Breaking Bad, and there was a moment where I thought, do you know what? Brian Cranston would make an absolutely marvellous Claudius. <laughs> uh, you know, a middle-class statement, if ever there's there's one. I mean, but then I thought, actually, he would make, you know, 
a stunning Claudius. And I, I'm a man who's seen John Nettles play Claudius. Um, and I got to thinking, then I thought, actually, do you know who would be a pretty good Hamlet? Is is the kid who plays Jesse, whose name escapes me. Ed. Aaron Paul. Aaron Paul. Um, and then I thought, well, you know, Skylar would be a reasonable Gertrude. And then I started working my way back through the cast of Breaking Bad. And then uh, then I thought, well, you know, the the guy who plays uh, uh, Dean Norris, the, the DEA guy, he would be a, a pretty good Polonius. Uh, you've got uh, Mike, uh, who's the actor name I forget. Jonathan Banks. Jonathan Banks would make a brilliant uh, King of the Players. Um, and then you've got Skinny Pete and Badger would make great Rosencrantz and Guildensterns. Um, uh, oh, what's her name? Girl. Spoiler. Chokes on vomit. Uh, what's her name? I forget her name. His girlfriend from season yeah, three. Season Jesse's three. girl from season three. Uh, season two. Uh, season two uh, would make an excellent kind of emo Ophelia. Um, Ophelia is one of those parts in my mind, which is uh, really, it's not all that. Mm. People th- think it's like Othello. Everyone thinks Othello is a great part, but Iago is the good part there, really. Yeah, uh, Ophelia is just not... act a bit mad. Yeah, it's a bit reedy. It's a bit thin. Um, um, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. It's not really... so, but I think she'd do a great job there. And I, I think generally, I think that's a winner. Everyone in that cast lines up to 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 the cast of of Hamlet. And I think, given that we um, are going to see very soon a Joss Whedon adaptation of uh, Much Ado About Nothing. Um, which he shot in the hiatus, the post-production hiatus of uh, of the Avengers with his, just his friends and you give video camera. I would love in the break between season, uh, the two halves, is it two halves of season five? Yeah, two halves of season five. five. Or are they doing five and six or is it just... It's counted as five. Okay. Uh, in the hiatus between, I think we should get a campaign going to get them <laughs> to make a uh, shot in a week uh, mini DV version of Hamlet starring those actors um, because... I think we're all in agreement that would be absolutely amazing. Uh, I think we should also allow uh, Aaron Paul to improvise slightly on his lines by adding bitch. <laughs> to be or of... not to be, bitch. <laughs> um, yeah, alas, poor Yorick. I knew that bitch. <laughs> um, that would be pretty cool. Um, yeah, kind of like a Mexican border town. <laughs> and like all the Norwegian army that come in at the end could be played by all the kind of the, the bandoleros. The kind of, uh, <laughs> oh, it'd be amazing. It'd be like probably the best Shakespeare adaptation of all time. I think the, I think we need to start petitioning everyone. Now, how do we get a petition to these bitches? I mean, Aaron Paul is on Twitter. Maybe As is could... Brian Cranston. He's, Brian Cranston's on Twitter? Yes, he is on Twitter now. Oh, does he say much? Uh, every so often, yeah. Uh, the, the most recent thing I saw by him was uh, his advice to the Olympi- U.S. Olympics team, was, which was to uh, tap into their inner Walter White. <laughs> wow, what a terrifying! <laughs> that perhaps why explains why the Americans are currently uh, in the past uh, second in the medal table because they've been running over their competitors and then shooting them in the head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, so yeah, that rounds up our little look at adaptations. That kind of that flight of fancy about Breaking Bad and Ham- Breaking Hamlet, I think breaking we should Hamlet. call it. Um, it would breaking ma- Dane. Breaking Dane. <laughs> Imagine that. That sounds like something you'd want to do to Dane Cook. <laughs> wow. Something I would want to do to Dane Cook. Um, but yeah, that rounds up our look at adaptation. Um, if there's stuff we've missed, like you know the small matter of adapting plays for films, <laughs> doesn't matter because we didn't talk about it. Um, so uh, we'll be back um, with. Uh, more interesting podcast possibly when we can think of a theme Um, so in the meantime it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me me.